Well, when we served as missionaries, we'd go to conferences in Thailand. One time we went to a zoo there. They have some good zoos in Thailand, and our kids had the chance to nurse a baby tiger. Um, it was an amazing experience. Now, I like babies, but I fear tigers. And when you see them up close, they are huge. And even the tiger cub had enormous feet, and I take it some pretty sharp teeth. I have a photo of Maisie, little two- or three-year-old Maisie, um, holding a tiger cub. I was nervous, and Maisie was understandably nervous too. There was awe and excitement. She chose to do it, but it was mixed with fear. In the accounts we see of Jesus in Mark 6, there's awe and excitement, but because Jesus has infinite power, People who get a sense of that power are understandably very afraid. Well, in this chapter, there are big contrasts. This power of the Lord, Jesus, King, compared with the power or powerlessness of King Herod. The Lord Jesus has awesome power and uses it to bring a sick little girl to life. Herod, by contrast, is a fearful king who makes stupid promises to a little girl after she does a dance, or a young girl. The constant privilege of Christians is to have an ever-expanding view of the Lord Jesus and his power. And that's very important to do so. Uh, There's great benefits in having a bigger Jesus as opposed to a little Jesus, meek and mild, wherever that saying came from. Um, friends of ours might look at us and wonder, why do you have this ongoing interest in that religious figure? What might we say? Why is he so significant to us? What is the importance for us of seeing Jesus aright, of expanding and enlarging our view of Jesus further still from where it is today? Okay, so our world has a, a little view of Jesus. We have a bigger view of Jesus But why is it important and what's uh, to come if we can have a bigger view again, bigger view still? Well, the three episodes at the end of Mark 6 help us to see the importance of it. First, in verses 30 to 44, because we realize if the Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. We know we lack nothing when we have him. Look with me from verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet, or literally a wilderness, a desolate place, and get some rest. Isn't it nice when leaders offer rest to weary servants? It's much appreciated, isn't it? Isn't it so good to see that Jesus understands human limits? But we see that solitude and rest was hard to come by for Jesus. And for the disciples, verse 32, they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary, there's that same word wilderness again, place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. It reminds me of Billy Graham's normal life. We're reading a biography for him uh, of him at the moment after dinner. There were always crowds on his, well, sometimes crowds on his departure, but crowds on arrival. And he'd go to a city for perhaps a four-week crusade, four weeks in New York, and it might turn into a six-week campaign because the demand was so great on his time. Um, Billy sought to have grace and perseverance, 
And our Lord Jesus, when he is tired, very tired at different times, has the grace to keep loving people. We see verse 34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, another large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. Shepherdless sheep. Doesn't that describe what we might feel like when we let our concerns take over? We don't know which way is up, which way to turn, how to think and feel. And doesn't that describe our friends as well? The sad difference, of course, for our friends is the source of relief. The guiding shepherd isn't yet known at all. They may not even realise such a presence is available. Jesus' view of these disoriented souls reflects his compassionate view of the world. We need not be aggressive towards the world. We need not be defensive against the world. No, from our secure position at the Good Shepherd's side, we can lovingly invite our friends into our relief. Now, truth without compassion is cold. But Jesus has warmth in his compassion. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them many things. He teaches people to help them out of his compassion. A message, news a compass for life, a way for souls to find reason for living. Like many of our friends, their great need as lost sheep is to have a compassionate someone share the words of life with them. And so Jesus began to teach them many things. Like all disciples, DPC's disciples are made and grown as God's living word is heard and accepted and lived, integrated into our lives. Verse 35, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote, a wilderness place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, curiously, you give them something to eat. Knowing Jesus, it sounds like he's ready, readying his disciples for something big. The master teacher is at work here, having them own the problem. Why? So that they will more fully appreciate the scale and relief and wonder of his provision. You give them something to eat, verse 37. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. See, they're forced to think about it. Literally, 200 denarii. Half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have? He asked them. Go and see. They're still engaged in the problem. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Now let's think for a moment. What does the God of Moses do to satisfy his people's hunger in the wilderness? Well, he kindly feeds them with miraculous bread, with manna. Could it happen again? And what would King David say to us when we feel like dependent sheep? Well, Psalm 23 is a good guide to what David might say. He might say, well, the Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. We we lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Well, back to Mark 6.39. It's odd, don't you think, that Mark here thinks it important to tell us the colour of the grass was green? Jesus told him to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. And notice too the interest in numbers. So Mark's gospel has lots of little peculiar details and when you see them there's often a link, often a reason why it's there. So they sat down, verse 40, look at all the numbers in this little text. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Notice the word five here. Taking the five loaves and the twos, the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. Now just imagine being there that day. You'd never forget it. As Bible readers, we're meant to visualize ourselves. We're meant to visualize the moments to take these times seriously, these accounts seriously, to let it affect our imaginations, our passions, our emotions. Look at some of the detailed observations here. I mentioned twos and fives. They, at the beginning of chapter 6, are sent out two by two and they're not to take two tunics. Seems an odd instruction, but okay. And now the twos at the end of the chapter, after this Herod contrast, uh, shows the need is being met with God's provision. 200 denarii worth of bread is uh, also uh, with the repeated mentions of the two fish. Two fish, two fish, two fish. It sounds redundant unless it's wanting our appreciation to notice these things. And so too, if you're a numbers person, as I pointed out, the fives, five loaves, groups of fifties, and 5,000 in the crowd if you count the men. But then 12 is a symbolic Bible number as well. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And then in chapter 6, verse 7, simply the 12 are sent out on mission. In verse 30, the 12 are given the lofty apostle title as God reconstitutes Israel with their message. So Moses and the 12 tribes of Israel, significant in the Old Testament. And here Jesus and the 12 apostles significant in the new. Their witness to who Jesus is will be foundational for the new people of God, the new era of the people of God, the church. And so God's provision to meet these 12 witnesses' impossible need that they felt is met with 12 baskets of leftovers. A chance or coincidence in these numbers, or is something else going on? What is going on is that the Creator, the God of Israel, the Lord of Moses and the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23 is standing again among his people. The Lord of the universe has walked in our world, friends. That's the point. That ultimate reality enters his creation and almost toys with its laws and the disciples' circumstances for his glorious purposes. The needs identified and numbered and matched with his provision. Like Jesus calming the storm. Here is another Who is this man? episode. He gives rest. He sustains his people in the wilderness. 
He cares for his sheep, his new Israel on green grass. I can imagine a family, a Jewish family, going home from this occasion saying, if this isn't the Lord God himself among us, I'm not an Israelite. It is God. It's God the Son. Uh, my friend's an Anglican pastor. And uh, he went through a series of, on theological topics. And one of those topics was the deity or the divinity, the godness of Jesus. And he was doing that from the 39 articles, their um, confession. He was well loved in that congregation. And so some of the elderly women felt comfortable enough on the way out of church to say to him, you young ministers with your fancy new ideas, Jesus is God. Come on. Now they'd been to church for decades, but they'd never had their view of Jesus enlarged to see that Jesus is Lord. In the full sense, Jesus is God. New ideas? Does it matter if we have a diminished view of Jesus? Yes, it does, as this chapter is helping us to see. It's relevant. And Mark's, Jesus, Mark's gospel is full of action, but it's also profound. It's been said that in John's gospel, Jesus declares that he's the Son of God with his words. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus shows us he's the Son of God with his actions. That's what he's doing here. But the showing isn't yet over. King Jesus' way might mean empty bags, no sign of bread, empty purses and pantries, costly integrity, the endless burden of caring for people. King Jesus may lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, but we know he has no rival. He is our life and he assures us that he will ultimately deliver us. The Apostle Paul says we're treated as impostors and yet we're true. We're treated as dying and behold, we live. As sorrowful, yet always we're rejoicing. We're treated as poor and yet we're making many rich. We're treated as having nothing and yet we possess everything. That's what's at stake with the Lord Jesus and a view of him that's adequate and growing. It's the testimony of Christ's people then and every year since. Many of us are going through or will go through pretty sparse places. But this good shepherd, we know, just refuses to forsake his sheep. And so it's important for us to enlarge our picture of Jesus, firstly, because we know if we do that we shall not want. We lack nothing. The good shepherd is caring for us. And we know God not just to be an abstract force, but the Lord Jesus shows us who God is. He's the one caring for us. Secondly, because we know the Lord is with us. The Lord is my shepherd, firstly. But we also know he's always with us. He has mastery over the sea, verses 45 to 52. Psalm 23 says, He makes me lie down on green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Still waters? Uh, for Israelite, waters were seen as chaotic. They loved the thought of still waters. Well, we see it again in Mark 6 from 45 onwards. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. 
He saw the disciples straining, or the word is torment, like the demons, and, and other occasions in Mark. Torment at the oars, because the wind was against them. Torment and then trouble again at sea. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Jesus was walking on the lake. Now we can read that and gloss over it with familiarity, but we shouldn't. The Lord Jesus that day, if we had eyes there to see, we would have seen him walking on the lake. And he was about to pass by them. Now what does that mean? Again, another little odd feature of Mark that we might want to investigate a bit more. It's the same phrase in the Greek as used in Exodus, when Exodus is translated into Greek. When the Lord, the one who says, I am who I am, passes by Moses in order to show and display and reveal his glory and his name. Exodus 33 says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and you will proclaim and will proclaim before you my name the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. Certainly, the fear that comes when God reveals his glory is going to be there again in the boat shortly. And there's another beautiful Old Testament echo as well from Job chapter 9, where Job asks, where is God who can trample on chaotic waters? Where is he in my chaos, in my turmoil, in my torment? But Job, for Job, the time for seeing God wasn't there, wasn't to be as it was for the apostles. Job writes, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And yet, verse 11, behold, he passes by me, I can't, uh, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Well, this time, the one Job trusted will for a future generation trample on the waves of the sea. He will pass by again, and yet by this generation of apostles, he will be perceived. For those of us who go through trials like Job, what about the echo from Isaiah 43, which looks back to the memory of the Red Sea and the way the Lord delivered Israel through the waters? This also is what God the Son, this also is what God the Son will do in the future. Shall not overwhelm you, shall not overwhelm you. God is right here revealing his glory again to his commissioned messengers. He's glorious and he's showing us he's glorious. But back to Mark 6.49. He wills to pass post. They cried out, he restores my soul. His mind, how mind expanding Jesus is, how mind boggling he is. He feeds multitudes like God. He walks on wild waters and then calms them like the master of creation. Mark's account fills our senses if we immerse ourselves in them. God is showing you today through this very visual account who he is and why it's so helpful for you to enlarge your view of Jesus. Unless you do, you won't recognize that God has come for you and is present for you. And you might be surprised or amazed rather than filled with wonder. Look at verse 51. They were completely amazed, but there's something deficient about just amazement. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. 
their hearts were hardened. It's like the lesson they just learned from the loaves had already faded. They should have known who was with them, who Jesus was, whose hands they were in. Fear in the boat in Mark's last storm equated with faithlessness. And it may seem a subtle difference. But instead of amazement and fear again, they should have been filled with wonder and a sense of, I knew Jesus would look after us. I knew our lives were in his hands. We should have known you would do something like this, Lord. I should have known you would never leave us nor forsake us through my hospitalisation, through my grief, through the loss of a loved one, through my sorrow, through my loneliness. Lord, it's just like you to be with me. An elderly friend of mine in her 90s was devastated when she lost her husband of over 60 years. But she trusted the Lord and she had a sense of his nearness that the rest of us might envy. Alone in her house, she would tell me each time I visited how much she missed her husband but how much she was aware of the Lord Jesus living with her in her house, spiritually. And since her husband's death, she's become all the more conscious conscious and appreciative of the Lord Jesus, a constant companion for her, an almighty friend she knows she has in Jesus. But oh, how we fail to appreciate the Lord's, Lord Jesus' presence. That's something I'm trying to do, to learn to walk and talk to the Lord Jesus, the God who made me, to drive and talk, to lie in my bed and have a silent communion with Jesus, to think of Jesus as present in our family life. I want to make my life a prayer, a life that knows that Jesus is always present and knows my every thought, whether I verbalise those thoughts or not that his presence continues after the word Amen is spoken and his spiritual presence never departs. When we enlarge our view of Jesus, we increasingly realise the Lord is always with us. And thirdly, with an expanded view of Jesus, we have the world's cure. King Jesus can heal the world's sick. Well, in this brief episode... Jesus makes himself available to care for countless nameless people who came to him for relief. Sometimes Jesus loves people by teaching. Other times Jesus simply loves people. Verse 53 we read, When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognised Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried those who were ill on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns or countryside, They placed those who were ill in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. They weren't touching a magic cloak that day. No, but they seemed to perceive Jesus' strength and kindness, the spectacular locus or core of the universe's power, a life source that can utterly terrify us if it comes to us suddenly like a tiger. But they saw a power here that they could approach, having the safety of Jesus' reputation known to them, 
the safety of so many joyful testimonies from their friends and relatives. They knew they could approach to run towards Jesus, carry their mats towards Jesus, this king from another order. DPC, it would be so good if we as a church could increasingly see Jesus aright, to have an ever larger Jesus in our sights, our senses, our meditations. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we remember the day through this testimony of scripture when you fed the crowd, our souls, our souls, with the bread you brought to our we can visual we can visualize through scriptures on a greater evil and chaos we can recall your compassion to the sick and to crippled bodies knowing that your body would go on to be crippled and of you may it ever expand week on week month after month year on year and may we see you as the world's great remedy the cure, the one to whom the world can run and come to from relief for relief and comfort. And so we pray that we too would take this good news out to come into this new Israel where you are our king. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.